Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> good to see everyone on this uh, sunny day, and hopefully it'll stay sunny. Um, I uh, am very moved by uh, the worship this morning, and uh, I, I chose the Isaiah 43 passage, and uh, I didn't realize how much it would speak to me. Um, in terms of its encouragement not to be afraid and, and to trust in the Lord. So let's, uh, let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the one who has conquered and defeated all the things that would cause us to live in fear. So that really all we need to fear is you with reverence <clears throat> and respect with worship and awe, we fear you. You are the one who determines our destiny, who controls our fate. And this is a good thing, that you have rested us from, you have rested this from our hands. Because our Lord God, as your word says, our times are fully in your hands. Our lives, Father, have been redeemed we have been bought with a price. The one who has conquered sin for us is the very one from whom now we draw life and health and peace, peace with God, peace with one another, peace that settles our soul that is so strong we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can walk through the valley of anxiety, the valley of uncertainty about jobs, about health, about the future. We confess, Lord God, certainly I do, there are times when our fears overwhelm our faith and your spirit is there to remind us, fear not. Fear not. You have summoned us out of the boat onto the waters of this world and you have made and continue to make our feet secure. This is a good thing we serve a holy God and we are humbled in your presence so we ask oh God that by your spirit and by your good grace you would speak to us this morning that our hearts would be quickened that our repentance would be true and genuine <clears throat> that our faith would be encouraged and strengthened and that our vision of you would be clear, so clear and so real that there is nothing and no one who could deter our sight nor blind us to the greatness of your glory and of your grace. Let this be our testimony we ask for we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't often weep in the pulpit, but uh, somehow this morning. <clears throat> I ended last week's message with a quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. Excuse me. I want to start this morning by reading that quote again, because uh, his words fit so well with uh, the context of 1 Peter 2. Bonhoeffer writes, uh, and I quote, In the world, Christians are a colony of the true home. They are strangers and aliens in a foreign land, enjoying the hospitality of that land, obeying its laws, and honoring its government. At any moment, they may receive the signal to move on. They will strike their tents, leaving behind them all their worldly friends and connections, and following only the voice of their Lord who calls. They leave the land of their exile and start their homeward trek to heaven. The only thing I would add to that, or at least further explain, is that we are on that homeward trek even now. That while we have not necessarily struck our tents, while we are still living in this tent of a body, we are on that journey. We are exiles. We are in exodus from uh, through this world into the world that awaits the real world that God uh, has in store for those who trust wholly and fully 
in his name. And I, I like Bonhoeffer's words because they, they match Peter's descriptions of his readers and therefore of us as exiles and sojourners in a foreign land. Christians and, and by extension uh, the church, we are a colony of the true home. We are an outpost of heaven here on earth. We may be naturally born citizens of the country into which we were born, whether that was the United States or some other country. We are naturally born into one kingdom, but then we are supernaturally born again into another kingdom, the true kingdom, which is our true home. We are born again into the kingdom of God. We live on earth, but our true home awaits us in heaven when the new heaven and the new earth as we have sung about it, when we see our Savior Christ on the throne in the new Jerusalem. And for the Lord's sake, until he returns, we then submit to uh, every human creature. As Peter has told us in verse 13. However, our, we know that our ultimate submission, our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate obedience is owed to God and God alone above all things. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the ruler of all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And therein lies the tension within 1 Peter, if not all of the New Testament, this tension between living in this world that we see, feel, and touch, that causes us pain, and to which we contribute joy and our own effort to make it a better place. We live in this tension between living in this world while longing to be in our true home, knowing that we are citizens of another kingdom. So that tension is really captured by two essential questions which Peter is answering in his letter, if not all of the New Testament writers. Peter is attempting to answer two fundamental questions. That if indeed it's true, and it is, that God is our true king, he is our true sovereign, our true ruler, why must we then submit to every human creature? And secondly, if God is our true king, our true ruler, if Jesus is our Lord and Savior, then why must we practice what he preaches in this world if this world is not our true home? And Peter answers those questions with one simple response. And it's this, that God's people live like God's people no matter where they live. Holy people live holy lives. Redeemed people live redeemed lives. Saved people live saved lives. We practice what Jesus preaches because in addition to coming to earth to redeem us from our sins and put us in a right relationship with God, Jesus also came to inaugurate, to establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And he created and left the church as a visible representation of the kingdom of God here on earth. And so we as his people practice what he preaches because that is how we bring the kingdom of God into this present reality. So we show the unbelieving world that the kingdom of God looks like husbands loving their wives, wives submitting to their husbands, children being obedient to their parents. The kingdom of God looks like loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. The kingdom of God looks like Christians who know that God is their true king, willingly and voluntarily submitting themselves to earthly authority because that, and keeping their conduct honorable because that is how Christ lived and that is how Christ drew men and women to himself. We practice what Jesus preaches simply because we are members of that kingdom of God. And that is alone is what makes us better citizens, if you will, than we are accused of being. That until Jesus comes back, we live in this life <clears throat> by kingdom rules, by kingdom values. We practice kingdom ethics. We show the world... <clears throat> that the morals, the values, the ethics of a society that's not built on the authority and knowledge of Jesus Christ is one that is ultimately destined to crumble, ultimately destined to fall. And that a society that is built and structured on the values of the kingdom of God is one where there is 
as our own Pledge of Allegiance says, liberty and justice for all. Where there is the genuine pursuit of happiness, not at the expense of your neighbor, but at the benefit of your neighbor. Where we learn truly what it means to love God and to love others. That our understanding of that means then that we are not called as Christians to use the gospel to transform culture. But instead we preach the gospel in order to transform lives. One heart, one life at a time, one soul at a time. As the, the saying goes, you change the heart, you change the person. You change the person, you change the life. You change the life, you change the family. You change the family, you change the community. You change the community and you know where it's going. So we, we practice these kingdom principles so that we may be witnesses to the glory of God and the power of the gospel. And through changed lives, the culture around us is transformed. And that's key to understanding what Peter is talking about when he gives these instructions as he does to the slaves that he's talking to in this section. Because the goal of Peter's instruction, if not the goal of the entire New Testament, is this. <clears throat> that until Jesus comes back, until he establishes his kingdom once for all, we are under a divine obligation to show the world what the kingdom of God looks like here on earth. Once again, God's people live like God's people no matter where they live. Holy people live holy lives. And that then becomes the crux of the problem because sometimes when holy people live holy lives, they must be prepared, we must be prepared to suffer because of our faith in Christ. And that brings us really to the, the summary of the, the big idea here for 1 Peter um, 2, 18 to 25, that indeed God's people live like God's people no matter where they live. And so as we unpack this paragraph, we'll look at verses 18 to 20 where God rewards those who suffer for obeying him. Or for doing good, rather. That Christ knows uh, how, it how it feels to suffer unjustly for doing good. That's verses 21 to 23. And finally, Christ suffered so that we might die and live to righteousness. That's verses 24 to 25. So let's unpack uh, the first part of this. That God rewards those who suffer unjustly for doing good. So he tells us, does Peter, in 13 to 17... <clears throat> what it means to be a good citizen, to be subject to those in authority um, and to understand what our role is in, in society. So after laying out the responsibilities of, of what it means to be a good citizen, um, Paul, uh, Peter now addresses the responsibility and behavior of Christian slaves. That just as freeborn Christians must submit to every human creature, he tells Christian slaves to submit to their earthly masters. And before I continue, I want to be clearly heard and clearly understood that slavery of any kind, that is the ownership of one human being by another, is wrong, it's unbiblical, and it's evil. And we'll, we'll discuss why the New Testament doesn't address the abolition or the criticism of slavery in a moment, but we need to understand that there is a real distinction between slavery as it was practiced in the first century and slavery as it was practiced in our nation prior to the Civil War. The first century, of course, is when the New Testament was written, including First Peter. So a couple of key differences are the fact that in, in American slavery, it was based entirely on race. America, in the first century, it was not. Um, American slave owners discouraged uh, the education of their slaves. They weren't allowed to read. They weren't allowed to learn how to write. First century slaves, however, were definitely encouraged to pursue education. In fact, sometimes their masters paid for their education. Uh, one New Testament scholar, a man named uh, Scott Barchi, uh, provides this helpful insight into 
what first century slavery looked like. Now, bear in mind, slavery of any kind still is wrong, and it was not always uh, a sort of an easy life. But generally speaking, this was the, the, the life that could be afforded to one who was a slave. So central features that distinguish first century slavery from uh, that later practiced in the New World, says Barchi, are the following. Racial factors played no role. Education was greatly encouraged. In fact, some slaves are better educated than their owners and enhanced a slave's value. Many slaves carried out sensitive and highly responsible social functions. Slaves could own property, including other slaves. Their religious and cultural traditions, traditions were the same as those of the freeborn. No laws. This is key to, to the spread of Christianity as well. This next one. No laws prohibited the public assembly of slaves. And perhaps above all, the majority of urban and domestic slaves could legitimately anticipate being emancipated by the age of 30. They could purchase their freedom with the help of their masters through a process known as manumission. So it wasn't a lifetime thing was first century slavery. It was, if anything, temporary. Sometimes a person sold himself into slavery because they had gone into debt. And that was a way of helping provide for their family. It gave their family, as well as the, the husband, roof over his head, clothes on his back, food on the table. And because he could earn money while he served as a slave, he would work and save that money to the top, for the point of buying his freedom after paying off his debt. So if that's the case, we know that slavery is not a good thing. Why didn't Jesus, why didn't Peter, why didn't Paul and the other New Testament writers not call for the abolition of slavery? And most scholars say that that's because it would have been completely unrealistic given the relative weakness of the church compared to the power of Rome. Given that Rome was already suspect of Christians, treating them as treasonous rebels, if the New Testament writers were advocating the overthrow of a, an entire socioeconomic framework, which is what slavery did, the entire Roman economy was built on slavery was based on the fact that they paid people uh, to build the roads, build the cities, educate their children, and so forth. So you're talking about undermining a complete economic system, and that wasn't the concern of the gospel. The concern of the gospel was one heart, one life, one soul at a time. That's why there was no criticism of slavery. Because calling for its abolition, criticizing it, would not really have been of any help to the ordinary Christians of that era. And again, it's because the gospel is not a blueprint for the socioeconomic transformation of a culture. It just isn't. The primary concern of the gospel is putting men and women back in right relationship with God. And then once men and women are in right relationship with God, then they will set about to put to right the other injustices and inequities that occur in the world. So in other words, Jesus... Peter, Paul, all the other New Testament writers, they had their priorities in the right order. They, remember I said all politics is local? All evangelism is local. When Paul writes some of his letters, he mentions that there are those in Caesar's household who have come to faith in Christ. That's how the gospel works. One heart, one mind, one soul, one person at a time. And they begin to spread the gospel like that mustard seed that begins to grow and blossom. And that as people's lives are changed, then they work to change the culture around them. The mission of the church is not to transform culture, but to bring men and women back into a right relationship with God. That they would worship Christ, that they would fear God, that they would submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit that they would then transform culture simply by transforming the lives of individuals. And then, in part of making them disciples, in the context of 1 Peter, teaching them that there are times when they will suffer because of their faith in Christ. The New Testament doesn't call for the abolition of slavery, but neither does it uphold slavery as an acceptable practice nor does it claim that slavery is a part of the created order. In other words, God did not create it. Next week, Pastor John is going to talk about husbands and wives. 
And it's, it's the, 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 the contrast, the, the juxtaposition of slavery and marriage is purposeful in Peter's mind. Because it, the institution of marriage was in fact ordained and created by God. Slavery was not. Slavery is a man-made thing. The New Testament doesn't affirm it, but neither does it uphold it as part of the created order. And the fact that the New Testament, Peter included, as well as Paul, calls for masters to treat their slaves with dignity reveals the fact that the church really did try to, if not moderate, certainly regulate how masters treated their slaves, treat them with respect, treat them with dignity, treat them as human beings, not chattel. So that becomes an important distinction. This is why then Peter can say to the slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, meaning literally the crooked. Some translations have perverse, but crooked is the better Translation is actually the Greek word scoliosis, from which we get our, our, our term scoliosis. It's a, they're crooked. It's not straight. So Peter is not telling slaves to participate in evil, to obey their masters simply because they're their masters, if they're, if they're encouraged to commit an evil deed. And the closest we can come to the slave-master relationship, it's not a perfect analogy by any means, if you've heard any sermons on this topic, you know that the, the closest analogy we come to is that of a, an employee and an employer, a worker and a boss, uh, or uh, maybe even a teacher and a student. Any position in which you are in a subordinate role and there's someone above you. And what Peter is simply saying here is that when they're good and gentle, you obey them. If your master is crooked, you still have to obey them even though they're crooked. Uh, a secretary can't refuse to write a letter for her boss or his boss, even if that guy is a meanie. You just can't say, well, I don't like the way he dresses. I don't like the way he talks. You, you, that's not a grounds. If he demands that you do something illegal, if you're billing somebody and the, your boss says, you know what, just add a few more hours there. Put a few more, you know, zeros after the first couple of numbers and then put the decimal point. Now you have a reason not to obey because he's asking you to break the law. You may have to suffer for that. There are consequences for that. But Peter says there's a higher law that, that you obey. So, Verse 18, we, the slaves are to subject themselves to their masters even if they're not good masters, even if they're mistreated. Peter tells slaves in verse 19 why they ought to do this. He said, because this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering while, um, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The phrase mindful of God it's similar to, for the Lord's sake, in verse 13. Slaves are to be subject to their masters because of their relationship with God. That's why we're good citizens. We're good citizens, not because we necessarily have good government, but because as, as followers of Christ, we know that we have a role to play in our society. So do Christian slaves. Once again, their master's authority is not absolute. If they're if it's the demand to violate something that goes against conscience or God's will, being mindful of God, slaves have every right to disobey their master. Now, I know some of you are in situations at work, I've, I've, we've, are aware of this, it's really unpleasant. It's not, it's a toxic environment for you. And I think Peter would say at that point, given the fact that you're not a slave, you're not owned by your company, you're not owned by your boss. If you're in a toxic environment, get out. Do whatever you can to get out. Paul even says this in, in the first Corinthians when he's talking to slaves. He says, if you have an opportunity as a slave to, to get out of your slavery, that basically through manumission, buy your freedom, by all means, do so. But if you can't, you're not doing evil. You're not sinning against God by staying where you are. 
We have a greater degree of freedom than did first century slaves. You can step out of a toxic environment. You can even, as Pastor John, I'm sure we'll talk about next week, there's even an opportunity to step out of a toxic relationship, a toxic marriage, if one's physical safety, mental health is at stake. So Peter is not laying down an absolute rule where you just be a doormat and let your boss or your master in this case just step all over you. There is reason to sort of resist that. But do it, Peter says, being mindful of God. Because this, he says, is a gracious thing. He says it twice. He says it at the start of verse 19 and he says it at the end of verse 20. It, in, in grammatical terms, this is what's called an inclusio. These, these two terms are like bookends that frame what Peter says in 19 and 20. So in context, this is a gracious thing, refers to the reward that God promises to every Christian who suffers as a result of doing good because of their faith in Christ. The reward is, has already been mentioned back in chapter 1, this inheritance that is kept in heaven for us by God, protected as we are by faith. But if you suffer, Peter says, for sinning, if you as an employee do something wrong and you're fired, that's not commendable. <laughs> if, if you're fired for being insubordinate, that's not commendable. If you're fired because you have chosen to do the right thing, the good thing, the God-honoring thing, Peter says that's what will be rewarded. That's what is commendable. One last thing before I move on and close out this point, because it's, um, I want to get to the other ones quickly. Uh, you'll notice probably that uh, Peter doesn't talk to masters. Whenever Paul talks about slaves, he's always quick to mention masters. He does this in Ephesians, he does this in Colossians. Peter doesn't do it. And the reason some think this is, this is uh, why is that there may not have been any slave owners in Peter's congregation. They were, it may have been a congregation predominantly attended by freeborn or slaves. But in any case, in any case, his message is clear that God's people live like God's people no matter where they are. And God rewards those then who suffer unjustly for doing good. And then we get into the, the next section. Christ knows how it feels to suffer unjustly for doing good. So if, if you're reeling from what Peter has said in verses 18 to 20, it's like you're just sort of wrestling with this, like that doesn't make any sense. Like I'm in a situation, I can't get out of it, but I want to get out of it and I have to suffer for it, I have to, I have to take it? And Peter says, yes. And the reason is because Christ suffered unjustly. There are at least three reasons why we are called to suffer in order to receive our final reward. First, because according to chapter 1, verse 7, we are called to suffer so that the genuineness of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, according to verse 19, suffering is God's appointed means for receiving our inheritance. And then thirdly, we are called to suffer in the same way that we have been called into the kingdom of God. We are called to suffer, says Peter, because Christ also suffered. And by suffering, Jesus left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. So not to wax poetic about it, we carry the cross before we receive the crown because that's what Jesus did. So it's almost as if Peter, the undercurrent is, well, folks, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, if anyone comes after me, let him or her deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. What did you think he meant by that? It wasn't a metaphor, folks. It's the real thing, and his readers are in the midst of it. But he says, understand that in your suffering, there is one who has suffered on your behalf for your sake, leaving you an example of how you are to think, how you are to act, and to how you are to behave in the midst of that. Christ leaves us an example. Some of you uh, homeschool your kids. Some of you teach school. 
uh, in the public school system and in teaching children how to write the letters of the alphabet. You maybe give them a, you know, like a piece of tracing paper and you put it over a letter of the alphabet and you, you, here's a pencil, just trace the letter. The letter underneath the tracing paper is the example and the child is tracing the letters. Jesus is that paper. Our lives are placed over that and we simply trace everything he did. So in your suffering, where you feel no one else knows, like the old hymn, nobody knows the trouble I'm knowing, right? Nobody but Jesus. That's right, because only Jesus knows what it feels like to be abandoned, what it feels like to be insulted, what it feels like to be betrayed, what it feels like to be lied to, what it feels like to be spat upon, what it feels like to be an outcast. To, re- to be on the receiving end of prejudice and bias and physical violence. He knows that. He experienced that to the utmost. To leave us, not just to redeem us from our sins, because we were the ones who were driving the nails in his hands, but he did that not only to redeem us, but to leave us an example that he shows us how to suffer well. He, he's our trailblazer on the path of suffering. So that every Christian, whether a slave or free, male or female, female, young and old, will follow in his steps. I don't like to suffer. Jill can tell you I don't like to suffer. Most wives will tell you their husbands don't like to suffer. Women go through childbirth, we get a sniffle, and we are bedridden for days. But Jesus suffered to leave us an example. He's a good shepherd. It's what he lays down his life for, that we would follow in his steps, that he would lead us. He has cleared the way, if you will, through the valley of the shadow of death. He has cleared the way through the valley of the shadow of anxiety, of mental illness, of abuse, of fear, of unemployment, of debt, of parental rejection, of a friend's betrayal. He's been through that valley. And he doesn't leave us alone to walk through that valley. That's what the psalmist says, Psalm 23, right? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's with us in the valley. He says, don't step there. that's, That's dangerous. Follow me. I've marked the path. It's marked with blood. My blood shed for you. And everywhere you put your step has been redeemed by me. Because Jesus suffered, you understand, that makes our suffering redemptive. There's a point then to our suffering. It's so that we might honor and glorify God by enduring it for his sake and in his name. And the point of his suffering was to redeem and to save, which is very similar to what Peter says in in verse 12 of of chapter 2, that when we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, why do we do that? So that when we are reviled and we keep our conduct honorable, it's for the very purpose not only of honoring God, but we might by our conduct, even while we're being betrayed, spat upon, and lied to, and mistreated, our conduct being honorable might just be used by God to win our enemy to, to, to Christ. Some of us are old enough to remember or have seen uh, videos of the, the, uh, the protest of the, in the, the, during the civil rights era here in the U.S. back in the 60s. And Martin Luther King Jr. led was basically nonviolent resistance to uh, voter laws and discriminatory laws in the South. And some, uh, I remember uh, watching... I, wasn't, I was too young to remember them as a kid, but I remember watching documentaries of, you know, fire hoses being opened up on marchers coming across, I think, the bridge in Alabama. German shepherd dogs being released and attacked. And, and these poor folks were just, they just basically lay down and got mowed down by fire hoses until, until most of America said, that's not right. 
by not retaliating, by keeping their conduct honorable, laws were passed that made things more equitable. Peter is saying the same thing. That when Jesus died, his sinless perfection, his suffering unjustly was for the very purpose of, of drawing our attention to the cross and saying, why would a man do that? Why would God do that? Why would God save me from his wrath by dying in my place? It was for the very purpose of drawing out from us the, the sin and rebellion that keeps us apart from him and that we cannot help but cling to the cross and then move beyond it into a life of discipleship. That's why Jesus, uh, that's why Peter quotes Psalm 53, 9, when he says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And by the time Peter quotes this, by the time we get to the New Testament, because Isaiah was 700 years before the birth of Christ, by the time Peter writes this letter some 30 or so years after Jesus' death, Isaiah 53 is firmly ensconced amongst the Christian gospel as pointing to Christ as a crucified Messiah, something that Jews, even to this day, cannot fathom. How can you have a king that dies? How can you have a sovereign who submits to such an ignominious death? And the gospel says, because that's the only way that we can be redeemed for our sins. And the thing about it is that Jesus never sinned. It's not that he resisted sin on the cross, which he did, but he never sinned, even on the cross. His entire life was marked by truth. He never lied. No deceit was found in his mouth, even when he was dying on the cross in our place. Verse 23 gives further evidence of Jesus' innocence. That when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I think about this text every time somebody cuts me off on four. Because I am, I, I, I keep my hands on the wheel, so that's not the issue. Right? The gesture is not the issue. It's what's in here. And what I want to do to that person who just sort of cuts me off. Or someone who gossips about you unfairly at work. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll show them. Begin planting seeds. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't go eye for eye, tooth for tooth, insult for insult, lie for lie. And the silence of Jesus in the face of unjust suffering is the strongest evidence of his sinless humility, his trust in God, that despite the brutality of his tormentors, you think about how brutally Jesus was treated. And they would punch him blindfolded and say, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? There he is dying on the cross and the Pharisees are saying, you saved others, you can't save yourself. Let them come down, Right? How Jesus, never, the thought never entered his mind, says Peter, to just pull his arms off that cross, pull his legs out from the feet of the nose and jump down across, I'll show you, never once. And even more proof of his innocence, it was customary in that time, if someone was accused of a crime they didn't, they didn't commit, to protest passionately about their innocence. Yet when Pilate demands Jesus answer the charges that have been leveled against him, the Bible says Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In fact, when you think about it, when you look over the life of Christ, his very life is the very embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what the life of Jesus is like? Read the Sermon on the Mount because only Jesus can keep that sermon perfectly. He loved his enemies. He prayed for his enemies. He's being lifted up on the cross and he prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How is that possible were it not for the fact that he is sinless? were it not for the fact that he loved them even unto death. 
saving the very ones who nailed him on the cross, were they to repent. And the strength that Jesus had to do that came from what Peter says, the fact that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that verb entrusted there implies a continual, lifelong trusting. It wasn't that just Jesus was on the cross and in that moment was entrusting himself to God who judges justly, but his entire life, so that when he was reviled by the Pharisees, when he was rejected by his own town, when they took up stones to, uh, to kill him after he speaks in the synagogue in Luke 4, Jesus was entrusting himself his whole life long because that's what he does as an example. That we now will do the same, that we will continually entrust ourselves to him so that when we are reviled, when we are lied about, when we are lied to, when we are betrayed, when we are beset by all manner of problems and evils, we entrust ourselves to God who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Jesus trusted God to, to vindicate him and to punish his enemies. He suffered so that we might die to sin, in other words, and live to righteousness. This is verses 24 to 25. So Peter again emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus' suffering here. So let there be no doubt that Jesus' death is the means by which we're forgiven. Peter writes, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the cross is not an altar. It's not as if Jesus brings our sins as an offering and says, here, O oh God, accept this. No, he is, he is the offering. And the cross is the means by which our sins are atoned for. And when Peter says Christ bore our sins on the tree, understand tree is a metaphor for the cross. It's a metaphor that's borrowed way back in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 21. In Deuteronomy 21 and 23, uh, 22 and 23, Moses says this to Israel, that if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, which is why Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take Jesus down before sunset on the Sabbath. You shall bury him the same day. Why? Because a hanged man is cursed by God. Paul quotes the same verse in Galatians 3.13. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was innocent. He committed no crime. Yet he was hung on a tree. He was crucified for our sins. His blood was spilled so that our blood would not be spilt. He was killed for our transgressions. He died on the cross as our substitute. He was cursed by God so that we would be blessed by God. He was forsaken by God so we could be welcomed into God's kingdom. He was rejected by God so we would be accepted by God. And in addition to providing the forgiveness of sins, the death of Jesus also supplies us with the power to live for righteousness. And righteousness is more than just being forgiven by God. It's more than just being placed in right standing before God. It means that, but it means so much more. We live to righteousness by practicing what Jesus preaches and by following his, his example. Remember, the, the moment that we trust in Christ, we die to sin. So the slate is clean as well, right? He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the problem, of course, is that sin is still active, still tempts us, still besets us, still dogs our heart, still haunts our dreams. But once we have come to faith in Christ, the moment we trust in him, our flesh, that part of us that was enslaved to sin, is dead. And everyone who is then born again by God's grace as Paul says, is made alive together with Christ. So here you, here you and I stand and sit. If you have put your trust in Christ, you're dead to sin. Dead to it. Dead. Dead. <laughs> but alive to Christ. 
alive with Christ. He was in the tomb. He came back to life. You died to sin so that you might now live and rise to a life that Christ has given you an example of how to live, how to suffer, how to glorify God, how to pray. And verse 25 ends with this allusion to 53.5. I'm sorry. So when, when God rather makes us alive with Christ, I, yeah, I get so excited, I skipped the paragraph. He gives us a new heart, right? One that wants to obey his word. One that wants to yield and obey the Holy Spirit, not the passions of our former way of life. So that when we submit to the Spirit of God, we submit to Jesus. When we submit to Jesus, we live for righteousness. When we live for righteousness, we glorify God because we are following the example of his son who submitted to the Father's will and who set for us a trail that we can follow. And the allusion then to 53.5 in Isaiah, by his wounds you have been healed, make it possible for us to know that we have been truly, fully, completely forgiven. Jesus, we know, was scourged with whips. He was beaten with whips before he was crucified. And it's likely Peter uses this verse to speak to those slaves who maybe had experienced scourging, or were threatened with physical violence. He speaks that to us as well. But there's another issue here, which I'm going to cover very quickly because we don't have enough time to go into it all the time. That is Peter referring to forgiveness of sins or physical healing? I've already tipped my hand. The short answer is he's referring to the forgiveness of sins, not physical healing. Why, is I, why do I say that? Because context is everything. Because nothing in the context of verses 18 to 25 talks about physical healing. Nothing. The first part of verse 24 says, Jesus bore our sins. That clearly points to forgiveness. And when Peter says, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the overseer of your souls, he's talking about the forgiveness of sins. He's not talking about healing. Not to say that God can heal. I'm just saying that you can't get there from this text. Because I know that there is a, a lot of theologies out there that say, oh, that's talking about, no, it's not. I'm talking about forgiveness. That's the ultimate. That's the best healing we could have. And then lastly, just to wrap this up, in verse 25, Peter makes an allusion again to Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that we're no longer lost sheep. Because the Spirit has made it possible for us to return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And here we have another reminder of Jesus as our true sovereign, our true Lord, our true Savior. He is the good shepherd. He's the great high priest. He knows his sheep, knows them by name, calls us by name, prays for us by name. My favorite verse, probably it, it's a go-to verse whenever I am anxious, fearful, Trembling, Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, that Christ is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to pray for them. What are you going through right now? What are you, <laughs> what are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? Christ is praying for you that you would have the courage, the strength, the faith, the vitality, and the will to walk through the valley that he has marked for you to walk through. At the same time, let's not soften the image of Jesus that Peter paints here. He does refer to Christ as our shepherd, but he also refers to Jesus as the overseer of our soul. In other words, our entire being belongs to him. As our savior and as our Lord, he is our true master. We're his bondservants. We're not our own. We may be free from sin, but we are not free from obedience to Christ. We belong to him because we have been bought with a price. He purchased our redemption with his own precious, innocent, sin-cleansing, everlasting, life-giving blood. 
that's the call that we have upon our lives. Uh, one of my favorite passages, uh, and I'll end with this, is um, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, just to tie in with what Peter talks about when he says uh, Jesus is our shepherd and our overseer, the fact that he owns us. You know, if you have ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know at some point the, the Pevensey children, uh, Peter, Edgar, Susan, and Lucy, um, if you don't know this, the story, I won't go into it. It's just basically these, these four children enter into this land called Narnia in which there is this creature called Aslan, who is a Christ figure. And Aslan, as we read the story, is on the move, and the, the children are in the home of beavers that talk. Again, it's a story, folks, so just go with me. And so they begin talking to the beavers about Aslan, and the children don't know at all whom, about whom they're talking. And so one of the children named Susan says, Ooh, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Uh, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and not make mistakes, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without her knees knocking, they're either braver than most or silly. Then uh, he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Cause he isn't safe, but he's good. He's a king, I tell you. He's not a tame lion. And he isn't safe. But oh, is he good. He's a king. And we must follow in his steps. You think about that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. You have not left us alone on this journey, and never will you leave us alone. Our King, the great Lion of Judah, roars with authority. And where that roar, roar would cause others to tremble with fear, for us it is the greatest sound of the greatest comfort. Call us, and we will follow. In Jesus' name, amen.